Uh, welcome to Adulting on the Spectrum. I am Andrew Comro, an autistic certified financial planner. I co-run Adulting on the Spectrum with my host, Eileen Lamb. Hey, Eileen. Hey, Andrew. I'm Eileen Lamb. I'm an autistic author and photographer from France. Uh, and in this podcast, we want to highlight real voices of autistic adults, uh, not just inspirational stories, uh, but the stories of people talking about their day-to-day life and we want to give a voice to people like us and like you. Today our guest is Jillian Nelson. Jillian Nelson is a queer autistic activist from Minnesota. She has dedicated her life to changing the perspective of autism and creating a better world for the tiny autistic humans. She lives solo with her sidekick pup but has a cast of characters including partners, PCAs, and a delightfully quirky neurodiverse social circle. When she's not working tirelessly, she can be found at local breweries, WNBA games, or anywhere else that promises an adventure. Hi guys, thank you so much for having me here today. Hey Jillian, thanks for being here. Uh, We always start our podcast by asking our guests how they like to identify themselves as far as autism identity go, a person with autism on the spectrum. How do you identify yourself and what are your preferred pronouns? My preferred pronouns are she and her. Um, I lean towards autistic first, identity first language, um, but I'm pretty open to on the spectrum or or people first identity. Um, I try to be really fluid with that in our community because I understand that um, we can't just normalize one identity. We have to make sure that we're really leaving that expansive for people to choose how they identify as autistic or on the spectrum or as an adult with autism. And that there's no one right answer. So I embrace them all. Nice. You know, every time we ask this question, we get such great answers and such good perspective on it. Uh, I love how you know, we say of autistic people that we're not like flexible and it's hard to see the other side, but I feel like all the answers we got in this podcast were very uh, middle of the road and understanding of, uh, of both sides or all sides of this issue. So that's really great. Um, can you tell us more about your autism diagnosis? How did you come to be diagnosed? Oh God, it's a great story. Um, for being a female of my generation, I was actually diagnosed incredibly early. And by incredibly early, I mean at 21, Um, but I grew up in the eighties. Like they weren't talking about autism and individuals that weren't the stereotype, like stereotype, like rain man. Like we were completely off the radar back then, let alone females with autism. They were even farther off the radar. Um, But I have a little brother. He is 23 now. And he was identified very, very early as autistic. Um, in preschools when they started doing the testing and then he got a medical diagnosis shortly after and the same doctor that diagnosed him um, treated me for everything but autism when I was growing up and mentioned to my mom that hey this is something that can run in families maybe you should let your daughter know about this and I started reading books about that my mom had purchased for my brother And at that time, there were no adult books. So it was all like supporting your child with Asperger's syndrome. But I was seeing so many things that were my life. So I went out and did a whole lot of hunting because in 2002, there were very, very few doctors that were diagnosing adults. There were even less doctors that knew how to diagnose adults who were women. In fact, the first assessment I ever had, they told me that there was no way I was autistic because I was too visual to think. 
So even from the little amount I had read at that point, I knew that that was a load of crap and I got a second opinion. And then magically, um, my mom hit two out of three kids on the spectrum. Um, and I consider myself incredibly lucky to have been diagnosed as early at 21 for being my generation. I, a lot of my friends and my peers, they're being diagnosed now at the same age that I am now for the first time ever. So I have, I feel blessed to have that 17 year insight to why I am the way I am. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a female, so I relate to, to this a lot. And I grew up in France where, I mean, even now, uh, a child wouldn't be diagnosed with autism unless he's very, he or she is very severe. Um, I was diagnosed at uh, 26 and it was like such a textbook autistic child growing up. Um, I feel like in the US now, I probably wouldn't be missed, but I, I still feel very thankful I was able to get that uh, professional official diagnosis uh, as an adult. I'm just going to add into that. Like, I think diagnosis is something that I've heard so much debate about in our community lately about what's valid. Like, do you have to have a medical diagnosis to belong to our community? Is self-diagnosis acceptable? What about the people that only had educational diagnosis coming into the community? Um, I think it's really important that we recognize that like France, I mean, you guys have a way better healthcare system than we do over here in America um, as far as access to healthcare, but like there's so much privilege in being able to access the resources and services to get an appropriate diagnosis. I mean, you talk about things like simply, do you have the health insurance? Does your health insurance cover it? And even things to like geographical privilege, like do you live in a place where there is a professional that can reasonably and accurately diagnose an autistic adult? And I think it's a conversation as we start talking about identity and diagnosis that as a community, we need to start kind of thinking about how do we be more accepting of one another? Like, do, is there really a right or wrong way to come about this title of autistic or can we just accept one another? I mean, most of us knew we were autistic before someone handed us that official piece of paper, right? Why does that piece of paper make us more autistic than someone who self-diagnoses? So, so to challenge you, it, it, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I think there's a line and I don't know where the line is, but I, cause I would cross it if I did, but I, I think there definitely is one. So for example, you know, at, at what point does somebody, I guess a lot of the hatred and I'll call it actually autistic on the internet is a lot of self-diagnosis looking for an excuse for their own behavior and i think that also really hurts the people who are legitimately self-diagnosing like I, I remember watching a youtube video of somebody who attacked me and eileen on twitter um and she had a youtube video where she just diagnosed herself a couple weeks ago um and that autism is not a disability it's not like diabetes a doctor can't diagnose you and she's saying all of i'll call it the stereotypical hateful things right regurgitating them for lack of a better term and i feel like a self-diagnosis should be to help you right it shouldn't be a public excuse for bad behavior. I actually don't think an official diagnosis is. I don't think there's any, but I think if you're telling parents, this is what autistic people want or speaking for autistic people publicly and socially, I do think having 
an official diagnosis of some sort is appropriate, right? Uh, where, where do you fall on that? I'm going to challenge you back. Um, because Please. I believe that our medical system is incredibly flawed right now. Um, how many people are out there being diagnosed with autism that aren't actually autistic because medical professionals don't really understand? Or how many people are autistic and being told by medical professionals that they're not because they don't understand? Where I work, we, um, we have a counseling team and they do a lot of assessments. And a lot of the assessments that we do get are people that have been assessed by other professionals in the cities that do not have the same understanding of adults and autism. So they were told, even though they're a textbook presentation of autism, they're told, mm -hmm. oh, well, you're not autistic because you don't flap or something small like yes. that. So well, I like to err on the side of caution and believe that, yeah, there's going to be some bad eggs out there with self-diagnosis, but if we embrace self-diagnosis, then think of all the people that don't have access to the privilege that is medical care and that is diagnosis that really need to be embraced by the community. And if we embrace them in the community, we stop all the infighting in our community, we can do more to change the perspective of autism to the outside world. So that when we do get those bad eggs that are self-diagnosing so that they have an excuse, if we educate the rest of the world on what autism really is and who we really are as people, then the outside world will be able to look at those bad eggs and be like, nah, I think you're full of crap. Like I know like 73 people with autism and that's just an excuse. And yeah, you should go get some therapy. So I, I, I don't think we are at the point where we have enough people doing that yet and feel like they can speak if you're not autistic, right? One of the things is, well, then you can't speak to me because you're not autistic. So I agree with everything you're saying, by the way, I, I which, which also makes it really hard, right? Because <laughs> there is so, so much validity, but I feel like also, well, if you have somebody who's not really autistic saying they are, and they're saying what they think it means to be autistic, right? Then that we're just, I'm afraid of it going too far and it just hurting too many people. I think, what is the reason you're self-diagnosing? What are, what are, what is the reason, right? And what are you looking to get out of it, right? And I think if it's, you know, to, to have Twitter wars, right? I, I don't think that's a good reason, but there are so many valid good reasons. A diagnosis is hard, which is also the challenge. And it also makes me angry at the people who are essentially taking advantage of that right? They're, they're using that it's hard for some as a reason for an excuse for their behavior, which if it's not hurting our community yet, will will. So. Yeah. I mean, and I think as, as a whole, like as a community, we need to step up. We need to stop with the infighting. Like why do we have Twitter wars of autistic people? Like, because they're not actually autistic people, pun not intended, but. We sorry. have a, like, actually, <laughs> yes, we do autistic people too like we, we do that where everyone has a medical diagnosis and they're still attacking each other <laughs> get true if we spend all this time attacking each other like my in, in my work I spend a lot of time on Capitol Hill fighting for things for the autistic community and every single person that's fighting each other on Twitter over semantics or opinions were to join me on Capitol Hill we might have a very very different world <laughs> but instead we're busy that like fighting over the most ridiculous things on the internet yeah and I but to challenge you again I, I would say that a lot of the 
people doing the fighting are the ones who are very set in their way of like with terminology because like people like me like I don't care if you prefer autistic person with autism uh, I don't care if you don't like ABA you know I respect that other autistic have their own views about autism and I'm not gonna go attack them for those views but those actually autistic they come after everyone they disagree with I witnessed it today again just because a mother ask uh, for ABA therapy suggestions. There are like 20, 30 comments uh, ganging up on her. She, she had like 10 likes on the post. I mean, she was just a mother. Um, and I feel like this is just not helpful. And another thing is that these people often use the word we, as in we autistic people, as in they speak for the entire autism community. And that's where it gets really tricky and it really bothers me because, you know, we are all different from each other and to use we to speak for an entire community is just not right because we their opinion is valid my opinion is valid yours is valid you know and we should say well as an autistic person i feel like mm -mm -mm, not we autistic people you know what i'm saying Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think there's so much irony in the fact that we have spent so long as a community fighting for the world to see us as individuals, that we are a whole spectrum of people that are all completely different. Like we have that, if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person, but then there's also the same fight that we all believe this because we don't like even <laughs> yeah. my best friend is a blogger in the autism community and I love her to death. Like her children are some of my favorite people, but there are things there are things that are hot button issues in the autism community that we don't agree on and that's okay. We don't have to hate each other. We don't have to start an internet war. Like we can just yeah. like each other and agree to disagree and recognize that we have different lived experience and different opinions and that's fine. That's, that's good. Yeah. I, I agree. Let's focus on what we can agree on. Right. Instead of what we can't. I mean, we can uh, focus on what we disagree on if it's respectful too, you know, like we just yeah. did in this podcast, you see, we're not like fully in line with each other, but we talked about it and it was respectful. We don't hate yeah. each other. We're still talking and that's, that's good. That's what we should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope that we can keep growing and seeing more of that in our community. I think it's important. Yeah, I agree. So you mentioned you do a lot of advocacy. Is that what you do for a living or, or working, assuming that you work? Um, I do. Um, I work for the Autism Society of Minnesota. Um, okay. I am our community resource and policy advocate. Um, okay. Really long title um, to say that I run our information and resource service, and then I also lead our public policy agendas. So I um, get to talk to people all day about the challenges of their life, and then I get to go to Capitol Hill and try to change the world. Um, it's like the best pairing of responsibility because I know that I get to take the voice of the community with me because I'm talking to them all day. So yeah, it's a pretty awesome. And like, we are actually the only affiliate in the country that has a paid policy position that is being held by an autistic person. What, that what is, is awesome. Oh yeah. And uh, Andrew was telling me about the law enforcement law that you passed. Can you tell us about that too? Oh, yeah. So on August 31st, 2019, um, a young man was killed not far from my hometown. Um, his name was Kobe Heisler. Um, he was having a meltdown. His grandparents called for help. They then called and said they didn't need help. And the police came anyway. 
um, and they re-escalated the situation and they ended up shooting and killing Kobe Heisler. And it was kind of the turning point for us that we decided um, it wasn't time to just ask for money for law enforcement to consider having autism training, that this was the final straw and we were gonna ask for a mandate. So I sat in my office one night, uh, my co-chair from our board was like, sit down, write down some ideas on what you want this law to look like. And I wrote this bill that would create a mandatory training every four years, every single licensing cycle, every single officer has to be trained. But we've seen that bill in the country before. Like there's several other states that have that. We took it one step further. Um, our law actually states who has to be involved in, in creating the training with autistic adults being number one on that list and family members number two. Um, then we also created a list of what had to go into that training. I didn't want to set our community up. I didn't want to pass a law that would set our community up to have law enforcement being trained with information that wasn't going to be helpful because that that's not going to save our lives, right? It's not going to give, like, if they know that, you know, eight-year-olds with autism, like, trained, how is that going to keep them from shooting autistic adults? So we outlined what has to go in the training, um, and then we set to work on passing it. Um, sadly, and also very, very excitedly, um, there was a lot of civil unrest here in Minnesota that brought this to our Senate attention very, very quickly over last summer. Um, with all of the George Floyd aftermath and they passed a major piece of police legislation and um, the Posse Caucus, um, the people of color and indigenous um, Senate and House members, they put together this super comprehensive bill and they, we talked with them and worked very tirelessly with them to really recognize that intersectionality between race and disability and they included the autism language and we passed the flying colors and in fact in just a few days on July 1st, the law goes 100% into effect and not a single officer in Minnesota will be able to take their licensing test without having four hours of autism training. That, was that is amazing. Yeah, well, congrats. It's the most innovative cool. autism training bill in the entire country. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping that to see more states um, follow in our footsteps, take our language and run with it. So what, what can other advocates do in other states who would like to either advocate and use some of your model legislation or your legislation as a model and or advocate for other change in general? Um, we got introduced for politic reasons. Um, I serve on Connecticut's Autism Waiver Committee and involved with, I would call it, our equivalent of an autism society in Connecticut. We don't have that here because not even they that they, they want to be in Connecticut. Um I like to insult Connecticut every chance I get. Um but you know politics on a state level and advocacy and in the change it's so complicated it's so frustratingly slow um and it's really hard to it's political it's like the worst type of like social game there is like Talk about just like lying straight to your face, having the senator who sits on the committee with me being like, I know people with autism. I understand you. I don't need to speak to anyone, but I'm the reason that this has been messed up for the past 15 years. So, but again, like, but yelling at them does not accomplish anything. I also speak from experience with that because I've done that too. Um, and, you know, so how, how can you help others do what you've done. There's 49 other states. 
there are not 49 of you. I got, there is not, I wish there was. Um, I got involved in politics actually through a program called Partners in Policymaking. And I yep. believe that there is a Partners in Policymaking in all 50 states, or at least- There's at least one in Connecticut. So I assume it's probably a national thing. Yeah, so a really, really great advocacy training program that is typically, like I know here in Minnesota, it's sponsored through our Governor's Council on Developmental Disabilities. I, I think it is too, because every state has a DD council. And I serve on our DD council now. Um, but I went through that very, very young. And then I kind of, I got involved slowly, but surely like things like serving on councils, um, showing up to a lot of town hall meetings, um, find civic engagement classes. Um, one of my favorite things that I do outside of work is I teach civic engagement for special or for special Olympics. So I'm teaching athletes how to do all the things. How do you go to the Capitol Hill? How do you write a bill? How do you change a law? Um, I am so proud that one of my first athletes in my very, very first class has a bill being introduced in January that's going to create um, a study to look at obesity rates in people with developmental disabilities, which is long overdue. When, why hasn't it happened? Because no one suggested. So now someone suggested it and she's working with her representative and senator to carry this law forward. And it all started with someone taking the time to teach her how to change the world, as I like to call it. But yeah, like there's classes, there's like programs like ACT UP and like there's, there's a million different disability organizations with self-advocacy programs that really look at that political work and then finding other people. Um, my inbox is always open to any autistic adult that wants to learn how to be more effective in the policy world. I will help anyone. I may not understand all the nuances of every single state, but I can tell you how to make a difference and how to negotiate. Do you think that reaching out to a state's uh, DD council is, and could you talk about the DD council? And I didn't know you were involved with that. I think they're amazing. And most people don't know who they are or what they do. So do you mind giving a plug for DD councils? Uh, um, I love my DD council. Um, I am lucky enough that I am in Minnesota and our DD councils head up by the legendary Dr. Colleen Wick, um, who is one of the, the foremost historians on disability culture and disability history. And she's just amazing. Um, we do a lot of work, like funding a lot of other programs within our state and deciding what does and doesn't get funding on um, things like self-advocacy programs or anti-bullying campaigns. Um, we've been doing a lot of work in cultural outreach to expand cultural understanding in minority groups in Minnesota. Um, we also do a lot of research. Um, so we do a study, we have a five-year study cycle. We do studies like, um, what is the public attitude towards developmental disabilities? What is the quality of life for people with developmental disabilities? How are we doing with our Olmstead goals? Um, we just are in the process of commissioning um, five more years of studies that are gonna look at racial disparities in the disability community and um, services and experiences so that we can get some data to hopefully start closing some of those systemic racism gaps that we see in disability services. Um, and then we, we just get to meet so many amazingly cool people and really have great conversations about disability culture and the changing climate. Um, shout out to my, my really great friend, Brittany, um, who is, um, has a physical disability, but is my um, co-conspirator on the council. Um, we're really trying to push um, new conversations about disability justice into the traditional DD council model so that we're not just doing the same old things we've always done for the last 50 years. We're going to change it. 
What does the DD stand for? So I'm going to give my summary of the DD Council for Aline. Uh, their Developmental Disability Council, which includes oh. autism, um, et cetera. What's very cool about, from my perspective, is it allows advocates to really be advocates. So the DD Council in my state, he's a father. He's a, probably even a more fierce advocate than even I am um, for, you know, just, again, empowerment. He was, uh, he's, he's amazing. His name's Walter Glom. He's helped me so much. What I love about his position is he's a pure advocate. So he works for the state. He's paid by the state, but he only reports to the federal government, right? So they can do what needs to be done. Essentially, they can piss people off without being fired. But in a way that gets things done as being an advocate, every state has one. They do fund causes that are good, especially for self-advocates. And they've, they've uh, had a request to increase their funding for autism self-advocacy as well. Uh, so, for example, in Connecticut, they reached out to me and they said, we need a new self-advocacy group in Connecticut. Right. You know, can you put some people together? Just amazing advocates with amazing experience. And I think you're right that they do sponsor the uh, partners in policymaking in all 50 states. We'll post a link below, but you should reach out to your DD council. Yeah, I have to look up the uh, Texas one. The day that we vote on partners in policymaking is the funniest day ever, because if you are a partners graduate, you have to abstain from voting because you benefited from it. So yep. like, you have this council of like 30 some people and at the end of it, like only like five can vote. <laughs> everyone else has to abstain. And it's kind of tradition that you say, I abstain class of 25. And like, as everyone's abstaining, you announce what class you are. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly cool to experience. And I get goosebumps every year. So, but it's, yeah, it's um, been an amazing ride and really getting to kind of shape what our state's attitude is towards disability. So like call out the people doing the research and be like, why did we ask this question? Next year, we need to do better. And to see those changes happen, even if it is incremental and slow, it's still happening. And that's pretty cool. That's what so, always says, that it's super slow. Good advocacy is very slow, right, Andrew? Yes. And I remember and some and I always like to assume that, you know, for the most part, they have good intentions. And I find that a lot of legislators, they just have no idea. They're very busy. This is our lives, but it's a very small portion of theirs. Yeah. We were talking about PCA waivers and I'm like, oh, yeah, Minnesota has great waivers. And you're like, we do. And this random person in Connecticut knew that. Um, but they are still incredibly impossible and maddening and so frustrating to try to navigate the system, but um, it's better than most places. <laughs> yep. Um, so for research, you mentioned research and we, I see a lot of, I'll call it hate, as Eileen would say, at organizations spending money on research. Can you tell me why research is important for funding services for autistic adults? So I think where we see a lot of hate towards research, I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain this first and why, what I think when I talk about the need for research, I want research about lived experience. I want research about what is the actual day-to-day -day life of a person with a disability like? Where are people with disabilities experiencing ableism and discrimination? Where are service systems failing people? 
that because research is really important. Well, the research that I think that gets a lot of hate is the scientific research. Does mm. it actually matter why I'm autistic? No. What matters is how life with autism unfolds and what isn't happening to support autistic people. Do I think we actually need to know where autism comes from? Nope. I think we've done enough research to determine that we're probably not going to figure that out. And that's okay. There's a lot of things we don't know where they come from. Like, I don't know why garlic exists, but everyone's okay with garlic existing, right? We're not researching to figure out where garlic came from. So why do we have to figure out where autism came from? Can we just Unless you're a vampire, I guess, right? Well, thankfully, we don't have the Vampire Society of America or the Vampire Society of Minnesota. I mean, it might be a private membership thing. And and Medicaid can't experiment. Right. So one thing I say is in order to get funded funding for services for an adult, there needs to be studies that seem useless in order to make that happen. So advocating for good research is advocating for funding yeah. right data you can say that so i'm not putting it in your mouth yeah no um, everything with we don't have data we don't have anything i mean um i have as you can see my board behind me it has all of my bills that i'm working on one of them is an entire accessibility um what did i call it? an accessibility like we're gonna do an audit of the entire state and um, county systems to figure out where accessibility isn't. And they're like, well, we already know that they're not accessible. Why do we need to do this? Because I can't get the Senate and the House to make the changes to make these services accessible if I can't provide them with hard data. Data is everything in system change and in funding streams. So it's so important, but we also really have to make sure that we're advocating for appropriate research and that that research is being done from an equity lens and not from a systemic ableism lens. Um, I did a research study. I part, I, my, one of my fun hobbies is I like to participate in research studies. And then when it's all done, <laughs> tell them why their study is completely screwed up. <laughs> so I did a social, I did a social research study that tracked 30 days of like my social activities and like who I did things with and where I went and what I did. Well, I only had two choices every day in this automated survey. Did I do it with staff or did I do it with family and friends? Like, hi guys, I'm polyamorous. I have four partners. They're neither staff nor family or friends. So I started just putting really snarky things in the other box um, to like really kind of reflect that I'm an adult individual that does adult things. I don't just go to the bowling alley or the movie theater or a community rec class. Like, no, I'm going to the bar. I'm having an overnight date, like these things. And then I blasted them at the end in the feedback. Like you are going to present this. This is going to damage independent autistic adults because you're going to present this information that we were only given these choices. That This does not accurately reflect the full potential autistic adults have to socialize in this world because I do a lot more than what was on the list they offered me. And, and, and by the way, thank you for your volunteers research. Um, I live very close to Yale, New Haven, Connecticut, and all the studies are still at the, uh, at the child study center, right? Because, well, that's still how it is. Although like one of the largest autism research labs and, you know, um, even like drug experimentation, pet scans, all that stuff, they, they really need people for good research and like you giving that feedback. Because if it wasn't you doing it, then who would it be, 
right? So thank you. I have um, a commitment that you will appreciate, Andrew. I refuse to spend any money, any stipend I get for any research study on the expected things. Usually I use spend it on things like cocktails. That's good. <laughs> it's my it's my um my non-compliance. <laughs> I like should do that. So have you ever done a drug study yet? Or I have not done a drug study yet. They kind of terrify me. Um, so fun fact, not actually a fun fact, but I like to introduce it that way. Um, I am one of those autistic people that is horribly hard to medicate. Um, I was actually institutionalized when I lived in Illinois um, because of drug-induced psychosis after people put me on a whole bunch of psych meds I shouldn't have been on. So after that institutionalization thing, I kind of try to steer clear from anything that can really screw me up like that again. That's that. That's fair. I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah. So then we've closed all our institutions. Um, still don't want to go back there. There's 36 states that that's still happening in. So. Yep. And uh, you mentioned that you're a poly. I'm just gonna say poly. I cannot pronounce the entire word. <laughs> polyamorous i tried um <laughs> is that something you're, you're open to talking about you i know you do a lot of advocating do you do anything in that space um i'm starting to this it, this year is the first year i came out openly as polyamorous um i was actually laying in bed with one of my partners and it was like a charmingly adorable moment and i wanted to post about it on facebook i was like oh nobody knows yet and it just kind of gave me like this really gross feeling in the pit of my stomach that like my whole life, like I am openly autistic. I will tell someone I'm autistic while I'm buying broccoli at the grocery store. I am openly queer. Like I have rainbows tattooed on my body. None of these things are a secret. So why was I keeping this other thing a secret? Because I'm open about autism. I'm open about being queer because I want to change the perception. I want people to understand what queer people are like, what autistic people are like, and that we're not just the stereotypes. So I decided it was time to also be openly polyamorous to change the stereotypes of what a polyamorous lifestyle looks like. Um, there's a lot of ideas that it's just um, a lot of kink and a lot of sex. And in reality, it's sending a lot of text messages to a group of people telling them how much you care about them and encouraging them and making sure they drink enough water and a lot of calendars. Because I don't hear about it. I mean, barely ever. It's so rare. Like, you know, I hear about people being gay, like everything, but like being poly is something that is still not talked about a lot. I have a friend who is poly, so I know a little bit about it, but just because she's sharing her experience on her private Facebook page. And I feel like other than that, I haven't seen anything about it. Uh, I've seen it in like one movie in France a long time ago. And, you know, I'm, I'm on social media a lot because I'm a blogger. Um, and yeah, I don't see anything about it. And I wonder if it's something that, you know, the more people start talking about it, the more we will hear about it. Um, so I'm really interested to hear more. About I your think experience. we're definitely getting to a place where it is becoming more socially acceptable. Um, I'm a big fan of the show Good Trouble, which is a spinoff from The Fosters. And they just launched a polyamorous storyline and like, I almost peed my pants <laughs> Like when I was just sitting there watching it completely unexpected. And then here, all of a sudden there's like poly characters on a show that I've watched for years. It was um, amazing. But I think it's one of those things where we need more people to be open. We need to talk about it. We need to normalize it. 
Um, and we need to break a lot of the stigma. So I think it's not that different than a lot of the things that the LGBT community has gone through, or even that the disability community has gone to and gone through until we talk about things and are willing to expose ourselves in the world. Like we're going to just keep facing a lot of stigma and stereotype. Yeah, that goes for so many things, you know, if it's secret, 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 uh, you only think about the, the stigma around it, the bad things around it. And then the more people talk about what it's really like and the more it becomes like normal. I don't like that word, but um, I mean, normalized. If, if you really break down the polyamory lifestyle, there it's, it's none of the sordid or like scandalous things people think it is. It's just this concept that love isn't finite that it's not a pie, that if I love more than one person, it doesn't mean that there's less love for everyone. It means that I get to love each person for exactly who they are. I don't have to try to find one person that checks all the boxes on that mysterious list of the perfect person. And it means that I get to be authentically myself because I don't have to be someone's everything either. So I can be the person who perseverates on her career and like that you may not hear for for three days during legislative session because they have other, my partners have other partners to support them. It means that I can like avoid social situations that make me anxious because I'm not their only plus one. It means that I can be exactly who I am because I don't have to be their everything and they can be exactly who they are because they don't have to be my everything. And then at the end of the day, when I do fall apart or when it is a rough week, I have a whole village of people that love me that rally around to make sure I'm okay and that I'm lifted up. Like, I mean, during session, it is not unusual for multiple partners to stop by just to make sure I ate because I'm sitting in a 15 hour Senate session and they all know me well enough to know that I probably did not feed myself. <laughs> now, why, why, it, and that was such an amazing explanation. I've never heard one that good or, or anything like that. Why do you think it's so hard for even you to speak openly about? Um, why, why do you think there still is that stigma? There's a lot of people that, they, I mean, let's be honest. I'm going to, I'm, I'm allowed to say things like slut, right? Um, you can say anything you want. This is adulting on the spectrum. We encourage it. We live in a world where there's a lot of slut shame. So people assume that if you have multiple partners, it's all about sex that it's oh you must still have like this monogamous style relationship with your husband or your wife and like now you guys are just going out and sleeping with a whole bunch of people and there's there's that stereotype about what it is and society doesn't like things that are sexually taboo that they don't understand i mean in reality though that's that's not how it is like i actually even have a partner in my polycule that i'm not even sexually active with we're just like artistically love each other and support each other and snuggle and like people have this idea of like what's supposedly the sanctity of marriage and like this idea that it violates that when isn't like the whole purpose to just love and be supported isn't that better than following some stupid social norm I mean I'm talking to autistic people so we all know that stupid social norms are stupid social norms yes I agree well I guess I mean, there's got to be a lot of like open talk and honesty. I mean, I'm thinking about it from my like mono relationship. Is that how you said? <laughs> uh, point of view. And I feel like, you know, there's got to be some uh, 
is there some jealousy involved? Like, do you guys, I mean, I assume the people you are with know that you are with other people, right? It's, there's a lot of open yeah. communication and things. And are all the people you're with uh, in poly relationships too, or are some of them, you are the only person for them? Does that make sense? Um, it kind of fluctuates. Um, I've dated some people that are monogamous and I'm their online partner. And I've dated a lot of people that are poly. Um, there is so much communication, which actually I think is what I really like as an autistic person is because you're constantly talking about boundaries. You're constantly talking about needs and there's so much communication and, and it takes a lot of that guesswork out of a relationship. Um, it also takes a lot of the expectations off the table. Um, but yes, there, there's also jealousy. Um, most of us try, most people I know that are not ethically non-monogamous or poly, um, try to manage the jealousy on their own. Um, I really try to step back and figure out why am I jealous? Like, is it because I have a need that's not being getting met? Is it, is it jealousy or is it envy? Because those mm. things are very different things. Um, and then also looking at um, really trying to embrace the concept of something we call compersion, which is finding joy in your partner, finding joy in someone else. So um, I am genuinely happy. Like um, one of my partners is an avid biker and their other partner is also an avid biker. And I love hearing about their long bike rides and the bike adventures they go on. And I'm super happy that they have that support. And like, I adore their other partner. I think they are one of the most amazing humans. And like, I could sit and talk to them for hours, which is fantastic for our partner because um, he's an introvert and we are both chatty extroverts. <laughs> so it works great um, that we have that friendship. But like, I take so much joy in knowing that his needs are being met by someone because I there's no way in hell I'm getting on a bike and biking for 25 miles with him all afternoon for fun no way in hell so I'm glad that he has someone that he can do that with and it makes me really happy and you kind of find that that balance between the jealousy and the compersion and when there is something that is jealousy and if it is a need that's not being met that's where you go back to that communication com that communication and say hey you know I've been feeling this way and this is a need I have or this is a boundary I have and just having that open, healthy, honest communication and figuring out the why we're jealous. Well, yeah, that's eye-opening. Um, it's it's so great that you're speaking about it today with us. Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's a great first step for a lot of uh, poly people. Do you, is that a, an okay thing to, to call? Yeah, I think so. I mean... Yeah. Is there any like controversy, anything not to say, any words not to use? I mean, again, I'm sure, you know. Um, no, like, I mean, there, like with any community, we have some controversy. Like there's a lot of stuff um, around unicorn hunting, which is like when you have a heterosexual couple that's looking for a third to join them and only date them. And it's a package deal. You have to date the man and the woman or you're not welcome. And the there's a lot of couple privilege and hierarchy and it's gross and it's not how a lot of them are just trying to save their marriage. <laughs> and never yeah. Happens. That sounds to me, not like that sounds different. Right. Then. Oh boy. Yeah. So. I'm very much, I live my life um, under an umbrella called solo poly. So I don't have a primary partner or something we would also call a nesting partner. Um, I live by myself. I date by myself and I just have a great network of people. 
That awesome. sounds great. Should we uh, do the quick fire questions? Well, I wanted to talk about food maybe first, or do we want to do the quick fire? Oh, do we want to talk about? Yeah, actually, we we're just talking about chicken delivery. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> context. Uh, do you want to tell our listener what we were talking about? So I was late hopping on our conversation because I got a box of food delivered that had a frozen chicken. Um, and it's like 98 degrees here. So I had to like sort out getting my frozen chicken into its home before it became an unfrozen chicken and a biohazard. Um, so we were talking about like food delivery. Um, this box came from a program called Community Cooks that's um, really just dedicated to getting healthy food into the lives of people with maybe less cooking experience or from lower income or marginalized groups. Um, as a nonprofit employee and a person with a disability, um, I qualify. So, so yeah, and that brought up some interesting conversations about cooking and autism. Yeah, we're, I think all of us were saying that we're not very good cooks. Uh, Andrew, sorry uh, if you didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> I can make, I actually don't even think I can say I make, make a mean mac and cheese. So I've been keto for um, five years now. So I just eat meat and cheese, which absolves me of a lot of cooking. That's so me too. I love meat and cheese. That's a very French Perfect. thing to do, actually. Yeah. Oh, there you go. And, and baguettes. <laughs> the baguettes. Baguettes. You know, the, the long bread. Oh, baguette. Yeah. <laughs> There we go. Same thing. The gate, as in a gate that opens and closed. <laughs> Baguette, the gate. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I love I, it. I'm pretty sure that if meat and cheese, like if there was to be a shortage, I might starve to death. Oh, is that your favorite I, too? That is my, like, I have very low executive function in the kitchen. I have horrible fine motor skills. So my fridge is full of things I can grab and go. So it's a lot of cheese, a lot of deli meat, a lot of meat sticks because yeah, I can same with me. throw things in a bowl and be like, cool, now I have a meal that's high in protein. Ketogenic diet. Yes, I could eat the same thing every day forever. And I do. Me, so. I've been eating a lot of turkey bacon this week. It's been really exciting. Uh, that sounds a bit too healthy or too. Yeah. yeah. It's like an oxymoron, like healthy bacon. <laughs> True. It's a great texture. It's a texture of food. Fair. Oh, yeah. You mentioned broccoli in the store. I can't stand the texture of broccoli. So broccoli, carrot chips and turkey bacon have been my go to accompaniments to cheese this week. You can have all of those. I will never take them from you. I'll save them in Connecticut for you. Wonderful. I have a few ideas for you. One of it is you take, you know, those square cheese that you find at the store, at the store whether it's uh, Swiss cheese or cheddar, and uh, you wrap it around ham. You don't even need bread. And I just eat it like that. I know it sounds gross, but oh, it's yeah. really good. Nope, and, do that on a daily basis. And the boursin, do you know what boursin is? It's like a, a cheese that you spread and you can spread it on ham and then you roll the ham and you can just same like eat it like that. I did that over the weekend with ham and brie. Yeah, that's awesome. So good. I love that too. Also good. Here. I have cooking tips. <laughs> so what political party do you align with slash registered for if you feel comfortable answering that question? 
So outside of being a registered lobbyist where I am not supposed to be partisan, um, I vote and follow the very liberal Democrat line. Okay. Thank you. So I am one of 74 um, registered libertarians in my state. So up twins. Um, well, I mean up twins. Oh my god, look at that. Oh my god. You guys didn't plan this, right? No, I didn't even, like I saw the Ray done, but I didn't notice what it said till just now. That is so, that's awesome. Do not drink coffee. So mine is just a pen cup because I want it out all the time. <laughs> that's funny. Mine was wine. Can but I be a political party? Can I just be a registered feminist? Hey, that's I, I mean, I'm pretty sure you could register as any party you want. You get the right in the box. Why can't you just register as feminist being your political party? I mean, here in Minnesota, though, we don't actually register our political parties. So there you go. So you How does it work? We just go and vote. <laughs> Is it on ask you? That's yeah. crazy. I could vote half Republican, half Democrat if I was on drugs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't want to do that. That's the only way I'm crossing that line. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do this. Okay, so quick fire questions. Uh, we ask, I ask you um, some questions and you give me the first answer that comes to your mind. And yep, that's pretty much it. Are you ready? Awesome. I'm ready. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, love myself. Stop, um, to stop being my worst critic. That's so good. What do you like to do to relax? Um, not talk to people and not be on the internet. <laughs> this COVID-19 living at home, like working out, just done with the, the people on the internet when I need to relax. <laughs> What's your favorite food? Cheese. <laughs> we touched on that. What's your favorite movie, film? Empire Records. Nobody has ever heard of it. It's the, the greatest movie. It's basically a commentary on socialism. Yeah, I'll have to. I will have to check that out. Wow, Thank even you. Andrew doesn't know it? Even I don't know it. That's so crazy. Okay. It's like Young Live Tyler and like the greatest alternative soundtrack ever. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually a little embarrassed. I haven't heard of it. So I'm going to check that out. You should be. Send me a message after you watch it. It's amazing. Will do. So because you are autistic, you obviously are incapable of loving everyone. How do you handle so many emotions and relationships? Um, well, clearly I'm polyamorous, so I just compartmentalize <laughs> it. There's like a person for this and a person for this. And if they all have other people, they don't know that I'm incapable of love and empathy. <laughs> She, she nailed it, Andrew. Also sarcasm. Sarcasm. Good. <laughs> like, a lot of the time we ask those uh, sar sarcastic questions and our guests are really confused. <laughs> and we have to cut them, edit them out at the end because they're like, wait, what? <laughs> we are, um, I live in a very sarcastic autism world because at some point that's, I can't yeah. fix how the world is going to be ignorant. I can only make jokes on, about it. Like My favorite one is the autism vaccine level up joke. Like, yeah. I got to be to level 50 soon. We, we like that one, too. Well, I think one of the reasons we're speaking today is because, well, Bridget introduced us. And I met Bridget at an Autism Speaks conference where we made fun of neurotypical researchers and shared autism memes back and forth for most of the conference. Yeah. So this is appropriate. Speaking oh. of which, 
fun Bridget story, the last a- conference I was at Bridget with, we ended up having like the police came. <laughs> what? See, I'm jealous now. I gotta, you know, we I I I actually I Eileen, we gotta go to a conference and get like the National Guard called. We gotta one up Jillian and Bridget. So I just think it would be fantastic if all four of us ended up at a conference. Um, my favorite thing is at the end of an autism conference, like or at the end of the day, like after everything, I like to call it autism puddling, where all the uh, actually autistic humans just gather and do like it's just adult parallel play. Like someone's on, like everyone's on their phone, someone's coloring, like there's fidgeting <laughs> on the floor, sitting on the floor, and it's just like it's autistic puddling, and it's the best part of every conference. Yeah. Oh yes. When you don't have Sorry, to talk to you. people, but you still with people. Yeah, I like that too. And Bridget has a question for you. If you were to be any mythical creature, what would you be? Man, if I were to be any mythical creature, who? What would I be? Um, I think I would probably be a mermaid like Bridget, but not Aww. as a mermaid. Um, just I love the water. Um, the ocean is my happy place. I would live by the ocean if Minnesota didn't have such great waivers. <laughs> Why I still live here is our disability services because it's definitely not the weather. That was awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And if you want to tell people where they can find us, where they can contact you, anything, uh, now is your time. Um, you can find me in a couple of different ways. I have a Facebook page. Um, Autism on the Go, which is a very poorly managed YouTube channel, <laughs> but I um, will randomly, on while well, I'm on the go, get inspired to talk to people about different issues related to autism, or you can reach out to me at the Autism Society of Minnesota. Um, my contact information is on our website, which is ausm.org, also pronounced awesome. Oh, that is awesome. Pun, pun That's so cool. And we are indeed awesome. I think we are an amazing organization with amazing leadership that's really doing a lot to like center autistic voices and create autistic leadership within our community. Yeah, thank you for everything you do for our community. Thank you. Thank you guys for everything you're doing for our community. If we don't have hard conversations, nothing's going to change, right? Agreed. That's step one. Yeah, I we agree. That's why yeah. we're here. So and I love that we were able to uh, have dif- different opinions tonight and still have a very nice and uh, respectful conversation. So thank you and bye-bye. Bye. Bye.